0: Hi, I'm Renee.
1: Hi, I'm Sam. And, and this is Laboratory Podcast.
0: What's a pirate's favorite coding language?
1: I don't know what. R.
0: For those who don't know, there's a language called R. I like that.
1: Welcome to Laboratory Podcast, exploring the
0: human side of science
1: with recorded interviews of emeritus and retired scientists on the evolution and history of scientific research throughout their careers. Hello. Hello. Welcome back. It's been a while, just a hot minute, a hot second, you know. as it goes in 2020, we we took some time off, but we're
0: back now. Um, welcome to Lab Oratory Podcast. I'm, I'm Sam. <laughs> <laughs> if you didn't catch that, I'm Renee, and I'm Sam. Um, and what have and... we been, What have we been doing? Well, to give you context, it is currently
1: November 1st, All Saints Day. Daylight Savings Time has just ended. We just went through our uh, 2020 Halloween blue moon awesomeness. Uh-huh. Did our rituals. And by that she means carved a lot of pumpkins. We did, <laughs> but they were very specific. They were awesome. To a certain cartoon that we have fallen in love with.
0: And they're awesome. Um, and we've been up to a lot of fall activities.
1: Yeah, walking, hiking, breweries, picking apples, making things out of the apples, picking more apples, making more things out of the apples. I think that sums it up, basically. Yeah. And working. Working and generally preparing for the winter.
0: Yeah. So uh, we've been a little busy taking some, like, good time to enjoy the weather here. How has schooling gone? Schooling is going well. I'm like kind of used to having classes again, and it's all good. It's making progress. Some days, as with everything right now, some days feel like they take forever and you get no progress done, and it feels like it's a year. And some days go by super quickly, and you feel super productive, and all is great. So it's a whirlwind and it's a roller coaster, as is everything right now. But you're acclimating well, it seems. I'm trying.
1: A good program mm-hmm. so so that's where we're at yeah i have nothing new to, to report i got a new <laughs> par- part-time job
0: it gives us good food we're happy yep
1: working in the food industry certainly helps um so yeah that's that's our life in a nutshell
0: and today since we still have yet to start doing interviews in person again Um, still figuring out how we want to do that while being safe and acknowledging that most of our interviewees would fall under the high-risk category of patients, and we want to make sure everybody stays happy and healthy. So we're going to continue doing some deep dives into science.
1: Yes, the whole wide-ranging world of science. The whole
0: wide-ranging world of science. And today we are going to start with Sam.
1: Okie dokie.
0: Okie dokie. However, before we get into it, we're going to set the stage a bit. So, so far on this podcast, we have very much focused on scientists and topics that relate to natural science. Now, what is natural science? Natural science are those subjects that when somebody asks you in middle school or high school about your science course, those are the subjects they tend to be referring to. These are biology, chemistry, physics, astronomy, etc. These are the sciences that deal with the physical world as a whole. However, there's an entire other side of science as well that I personally feel like when folks ask you if you're in STEM, they tend to be referring to those natural sciences. However, there is also social science. And social science is the study of human society and social relationships as well. So social science includes things like history, linguistics, anthropology, economics, and political science. And seeing that we are currently in a one might say, slightly tumultuous time. Slightly. Slightly. Um,
1: Understatement of the year.
0: (laughs) We are going to branch out today, and Sam is going to dive into one of the social sciences, and hopefully we'll see how it also relates back of how there's an art and there's a mathematics to all these sciences, however you put it, and whatever you want to call it. And I think that that's really important to focus on because while we do focus on a lot of these physical, natural sciences, there's a whole world beyond that that is often overlooked but is just as important to study.
1: So with that, we're going to learn a little bit more about political science. So uh, with a lot of my topics, I feel like I only hit the very tip of the iceberg, but I also feel like it's a good way to learn more about the world around me, much like I feel like scientists do. While you may not know everything, you can at least explore. And I was really interested in doing a little bit more research on political science because if you are anywhere at all in the United States right now or affiliated with the United States or are generally interested or involved with the United States, then you're aware of the unprecedented election season that is happening right now. And probably at this point in time, if you're in that group Uh, You'll probably be feeling a little bit exhausted by the onslaught of polling information or news about the ways the campaigns are being held during the pandemic and the subsequent fallouts, not to even mention what is going on or what has gone on with the debates. We won't get into all that.
0: But, But before we get into anything else, can I pause and ask you a very important question as we're talking about political science? Please. Have you voted yet? I have voted.
1: Okay, you're allowed to talk about political science now. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. have you voted? Yes. Good. I got a sticker and everything. I'm gonna do my best to get this out on election day and go vote. Just go vote. Please. 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 And keep voting because <laughs> it's very important. All right, continue. So after one hell of a roller coaster ride in 2020, and you know, we're still on this roller coaster ride. Uh the election more than ever before, seems to be shaping up to have lasting repercussions for a number of years. Uh, And in light of all this, and because I can't stop listening to the news, uh, the political aspect of the news in particular, I've decided to go into political science. All right, so as we were talking, um, there's a vast range of sciences, and some of you might be thinking to yourselves that political science probably isn't an actual science and shouldn't be talked about on this podcast. Yeah, where's your lab for political science, huh? Your computer, the polling (laughs) places, uh, and any number of historical numbers that people have kept. Mm -hmm. I think it's a great study of where we've come from, where we're going. There are those that would argue, uh, like the source that I found on politicalsciencereview.com, that uh, since the aim of science is the discovery of universal laws and the laws of science are based on experience and they are verifiable in experience, I believe that it can aptly be applied to a broad range of subjects that aren't just chemistry um, or biology. It can be applied to politics as well. In fact, Aristotle is uh, known to have said that politics is the master or supreme science. Well, then. Yes. But what exactly is political science? Uh, My source at thoughtco.com explains that this once former area of philosophy is a study of governments and all of their forms and aspects, both theoretical and practical. It's typically considered a social science, as Renee was talking about, and most accredited universities have separate schools and departments and research centers devoted to the study of central themes within political science. So there is an area in universities that studies this. It's not just people walking around taking polls, Mm -mm. but those people doing that have degrees. (laughs) The history of the discipline is basically as long as that of humanity. It has roots in the Western tradition, and typically uh, it's individuated in the works of Plato. And most importantly, in Plato's Republic and Aristotle's politics. I hope I got that right. Correct me if I didn't. I hope so, too. Okay. So, as a political scientist, you might ask yourself, what is the most fitting political arrangement for a given society? That's... Pretty much a question that they ask themselves. Um, they also ask: Is there a best form of government towards which every human society should tend? And if there is, what is it? Some other questions are: What principles should inspire a political leader? Uh, and most Western philosophers and political leaders took Plato and Aristotle's writings as models for the formulation of their views and policies today. Uh, according to ancient Greek perspectives the quest for the most appropriate structure of the state is the ultimate philosophical goal. And Plato and Aristotle are noted as having believed that it is only within a politically well-organized society that the individual can find true blessedness. Blessedness. Yes. Oh, boy. So if you're studying politics, if you're looking to shape it, that's kind of the goal. And as we in Western society uh, have very much taken a lot of uh, what we're doing from Greek culture. We should be looking to be more blessed.
0: Alas,
1: (laughs) it is not the case. But we'll go back to the history. So for Plato, it is said he believed that the functioning of a state parallels one of a human soul. His rationale was that the soul has three parts, rational, spiritual, and appetitive. So the state has three parts, the ruling class, corresponding to the rational part of the soul, the auxiliaries, corresponding to the spiritual part, and the productive class, corresponding to the appetitive part. Uh, And in his work Republic, he discusses the ways in which a state can be most appropriately run. And by doing so, he extends his understanding and belief to teach a lesson uh, about the most appropriate way for a human to run their life. And Aristotle emphasized even more than Plato, the dependence between the individual and the state. And says that it's in our biological constitution to engage in social living and only within a well-run society can we fully realize ourselves as humans. Humans are political animals. There is so much to unpack here. So you are trying to
0: place individual humans within the society and their role within the society and how the society benefits the human as well as the human benefiting society and kind of trying to maximize that relationship.
1: I believe it goes hand in hand. I mean, we as animals want to live well, like we want to be well fed. We want Mm -hmm. to have a place to sleep. Um, we also realize that having a leader is pretty important because there are alphas and there, uh, are beta people, And I think that there are some people not cut out to help us lead a blessed life, (laughs) or a, I guess, well-cared-for life, Mm -hmm. Um, and those people just want to serve, and there are people that know how to organize other people. So it's finding this perfect balance
0: where you don't end up finding a perfect balance. (laughs)
1: Exactly. Well, I think that's for and so I think that, yeah, that's where we'll start with the political science uh, in where its origins come from. But but from that extends so many questions. How do we do that? How have we done that in the past? What has indicated uh, ways in which people have done that effectively? How can we apply that to other areas? Um, and, And in the United States, this exercise of democracy, how is that working? I think it's really important to be observant and take these statistics down um I mean um, for so many reasons and it, it the United States is an experiment most people in the history of the world have had dictatorships or um monarchies and haven't had to pick so I think it's really important to document and explore how this is shaping up and how it's going I think it's also one of the other reasons I think it's important to discuss is um Right now, we are in a really historical time. People are going to study this election and learn how to move forward because pandemics aren't going away. Plus, it's also, aside from pandemics, it's the mail in voting, it's uh, the voter fraud, it's other nations coming to undermine this democracy. So, it's up to the scientists to study all that and project how we can move forward in order to leave a blessed life for mm-hmm. lack of a better term. Um, and so going on this personal note uh, of what I believe, I think that science, uh, political scientists are also important because um, we need to, yeah, like I said, we need to document how we conduct ourselves um, and for instance, one of the cases that is coming up, if you're following science, is the uh, Supreme Court ruling in Shelby versus Holder, how it has affected voter turnout. Um, and there's a vast amount of evidence that suggests that it, this ruling has negatively affected the way many groups vote in elections, primarily minority groups in particular. Um, so, a, a brief kind of Sam history on that ruling. Please. So this is the ruling where RBG famously dissented and said that taking away this um, ruling, it was basically protecting voter rights. It was that states had to disclose if they were going to change any of the way that they were going to conduct their polling and the Supreme Court had to approve it. Basically, with this ruling, states can run willy-nilly and do any sorts of voter registration that they deem fit. Um, So... In the case of Alabama, they imposed a photo ID requirement um, for their to, tur- to turn up to vote and simultaneously shut down 31 driver's license centers uh, across the state, many of which they were located in majority black counties. So
0: when you need to go to go get your ID or license so that you can vote, suddenly it's that much more difficult and harder to do and therefore making it more, uh, building more barriers between you and
1: ease of voting. Exactly. Um, In another instance, in Texas, there is a seemingly arbitrary list of acceptable forms of ID to go and register to vote. And a handgun license in Texas counts at the polls, but a college ID does not. That's terrifying. I think so. Uh, Another instance uh, of the way that states can regulate voter rights and voter registration uh, in Ohio, they can drop voters from their rolls without the voters knowledge if the voter misses two consecutive voting cycles. In a 2016 Reuters study, uh, they reported the removal of at least 144,000 people from the voting rolls in recent years in Ohio's three largest and most racially diverse counties. Cleveland, Cincinnati, and Columbus.
0: And let's point it out that there could be many, many reasons why you might not be voting consecutively or in every election that you need to, to be able to be qualified for future elections. And while I always encourage everybody to vote in every election, whether presidential or small local elections, it's understandable that that might not have been the case.
1: Exactly. I think voting comes with a lot of responsibility and privilege. Uh, I think if you have that privilege, you need to exercise it because that is literally what the United States is founded on. I also think that we as a country need to be held accountable to our actions. And I mean, I also really think that it should be easy as possible for people to vote. That would be nice. It would. But if people aren't keeping track of what the states are doing and studying these trends, then we wouldn't know how other people are being affected. Um, And therefore, I think political science is very important.
0: Well, clearly. You've put up a very good cause for it. Thank you.
1: Um, But I also want to try and get to a silver lining here. It's not all that bad. Uh, If the 2020 election season has shown us anything, it's that we're all able to overcome quite a bit. Yeah. Yep. Uh, To turn up and participate. Uh, And we've been doing it in increasing numbers uh, via voting in the past years. In an article in the USA Today, uh, they state that on the eve of election, of 2020 election, at least 92 million people have already voted. And that's about two-thirds of the total votes counted in the 2016 general election. And this uh, is days before the actual election where people will show up to vote. So more than 257 million people in the U.S. who are 18 and older and nearly 240 million citizens are eligible to vote this year. It's possible that more than 150 million people may turn out this year in total. If so, that means that the eligible voter turnout rate is more than 62%. And when you compare it to uh, some recent elections in the past year that were of note, these are the numbers. So in 2008, when Barack Obama was versus John McCain, that was only 61% of voters. In 2016, with Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, that was only 60%. 1972, Richard Nixon and George McGovern, that was only 56%. And the famous 2000. Uh, presidential election between George W. Bush and Al Gore, that was only 54%.
0: And what did you say the prediction is for this year? 62. So did they get to that number based on how many people have already voted and then accounting the fact that some of those folks in past years have voted on the day versus not, and then trying to estimate how many people will vote the day of, and adding that to the
1: current tally of voters? I believe so. It is a projection. It's mm-hmm. part of well, yeah. yeah, the political science's projection rates. But I think they can count the people that have already voted and then look at the voter registration and kind of see what the numbers can calculate up to. Use that mathematic skill. Who knows? I mean, we might see a number far beyond that. We might see a number less than that, but already we've caught up to two-thirds of the 2016 election, and it's only a couple days before the election. Which is wild. It's very wild.
0: And it's interesting because you see this on this broad scale that you're talking about, but you also see it on the more local scale. And even just from my experience of voting, I voted last week in person uh, because Maine has early voting, And when I went there, they made a comment about how the number of people in the town that have voted already is more than half the amount that have voted in previous elections in total. So even if it doesn't amount to the fact that more people end up voting than in the past, it seems like people are at least taking action to make sure that they can vote and they're being more proactive about
1: it. And just to get a little slice of life, did someone say that to you in passing, or how was that brought to your attention at the voting polls?
0: Um, well, I voted in the basement of our city hall and I walked in and there were four lovely women behind pe- Plexiglass in their masks, and they were chatting while I was voting, and we were having a nice little discussion because I was the only one there at eight thirty in the morning.
1: So it does bring up a, a really cool point, though. So your voting was essentially absentee voting early. Correct. It wasn't the what you would imagine if you show up on voting day, and it's like the whole rigmarole of the curtains and the Correct. machine and everything.
0: Mine was take your ballot, sit down, fill in the boxes, put it in the envelope that you're given, sign the envelope, and give it back to them. So it would be similar as to if you got a mail-in vote filled it out, and then sent it in.
1: And people could talk to you while you were voting. And
0: people could encourage the fact that they were happy that people are showing up to vote at 8.30 in the morning on a rainy Monday.
1: And just to also get a little anecdotal main, I don't know, uh, Slice of Life, another one. People, were there anyone there that were watching you vote? in sp- Like, I forget what they're called right now, but it's the, um, the voter... Lookers, I want to call them. <laughs> but there's a movement that people are being encouraged to go and monitor the polls. Did you feel intimidated? No,
0: I did not. Again, it was me alone in the basement of City Hall with these four lovely women. Um, there was one guy who walked in. Um, in Maine, you can register to vote when you vote. Um, so there's one guy who walked in who wanted to register to vote didn't have the proper information and went back and all they could do is please come back they were very worried that by turning him away due to not having the right forms meant that he wasn't going to come back but he promised he was going to come back and then as I got back to my car there was two other women who were walking in to vote those are the only people I saw while voting it was shockingly easy
1: we do have it pretty good up in Maine, mm-hmm. I will admit, compared to the other stories you hear um, people intimidating other other voters across the country, long lines. Um, and like I said, that is part and parcel with the Supreme Court ruling in 2013, where um, there's so much being legislated now on how we can early vote or... If we open up polling places, multiple ones in a county, or if they close all those ones and only have one polling place, so you're waiting in line for hours on end, it is a tangled weave that I just feel we need to hold to account. Mm -hmm. And it's wild. I was lucky enough to uh, do an absentee ballot, send it into Massachusetts. Um, I got to do it from the comfort of my home. I made sure to read all the directions thoroughly and sign where I was told. <laughs> I read the instructions three times, mm-hmm. and I still am like, did I do that right? It's scary a little bit.
0: I got to rank vote, and so I was reading that over and over again, and I had much pleasure in ranking my votes.
1: I also want to say that the, um, uh, the props that you vote on are hard to understand,
0: And that's why doing research ahead of time makes such a big difference. But often those are not talked about as much as the larger main election is discussed because that is so uniquely either state to state or county to county sometimes.
1: Right. But. All that to say, do your homework, do your research. I think it's great that um, people are mobilizing en masse to get other people to vote. I think that's what's causing all of the uh, turnout numbers to be as high as they are. Um, And I think the younger generations just getting more involved uh, with the advance of the Internet and the intercommunication, that has been so helpful. Um, But it can go further. We could always we could go further and, and really know that you matter. That is another one I want to say. Like, know that you matter. Know that your vote matters. Go and do it. Just vote. I do have a little bit of history (laughs) just to round us out. um, And just to also highlight the political science nature because I think it's political science and history. I guess that's why it's a social science. You're Mm -hmm. studying all of... Uh, the humans history. Similar to how anthropology and
0: linguistics and all these other social sciences. Yeah.
1: One of the um interesting things in voter turnout that I came across was that uh in the eighteen hundreds, late eighteen hundreds, the US saw the highest eligible voter turnout rate, and that was eighty-two percent. So we're at sixty two percent right now in twenty twenty. Uh, That was so the 82 percent was in 1876 when the Republican Rutherford Hayes defeated Democrat Samuel Tilden Um, and the elections of 1868, 1880, 1888 and 1840 also saw rates above 80 percent. Do You know why?
0: I was about to ask why.
1: So after the Civil War and the passage of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, uh, the United States saw very high turnout rates that uh, included freed slaves. And despite the efforts of suppressing the vote of freedmen, you still, you still saw a tremendous amount of turnout. But the rates would fall with the end of the uh, reconstitution. And as federal officials withdrew from the southern states and Jim Crow laws barred newly enfranchised black voters uh the progressive era reforms including the creation of secret ballot and voter registration laws ironically had the effect of decreasing turnout and by 1920 rates fell to less than 50 percent turnout rates continued to fluctuate throughout the mid-20th century as women gained the right to vote and we just hit that anniversary and Congress passed the 1965 v- Voting Rights Act, and the national voting age became 18, which it had been recently 21 in most states. So, we've undergone a lot in the United States, and I would just argue that I think we need more <clears throat> transparency, we need more information. I think it's also important, this comes into play
0: of knowing your sources. Because a lot of polls out there and a lot of studies that are out there are legitimate. And you can look at who conducted them, how they conducted them. You could look into the statistics, the math, the science behind them and how they did that. And I feel like often um, in this election, you've been seeing a lot of folks shout angry numbers at each other or I saw this or this. And truly understanding how to interpret graphs, how to interpret figures and poles and numbers is not a trivial factor here. Not by any means. And that is something that you can easily manipulate data to make it look at first glance that it is something different than what it is. You can you can sway data to look like it is your version of the story versus somebody else's. And I think that that's something that you unfortunately see a lot of nowadays when it comes to data that has been published by political scientists um, because it's still valid numbers and they're still representing what the information is, but they're representing it in such a way that when you look in the... 30 seconds that you scroll past it on your social media, it shows one picture versus the true image that they have pulled together for you.
1: And I think that that work is important. Mm -hmm. Do your research, do your work, um, and props to all the political scientists out there. I know that I really, like I said, I barely scratched the surface and I kind of went into history and more importantly, just went into voting and how that has affected everything and voter turnout. But the range of political science stretches far beyond just this election um, and I think can help us. I've said this so much, but remain accountable um, and just generally move forward so we can have a life where everyone is taken care of have that blessed life right i think going forward especially as a scientist where you're not compromised by emotion so much i mean generally as humans we have emotions but when you're just looking at the data and you're trying to account for how to do the best possible thing purely by data i think that can go a long way i agree i like data Um, So I just want to end by saying that we're on the eve of the 2020 election. Um, By the time this episode airs, we might know the next president of the United States. Um, But if not, because actually there's no legal requirement to finish the counting in a single day, night or week. That's why they keep calling it election season this year. Uh, be sure that there will be political scientists out there frantically at work trying to document and make sense of the election data during this highly irregular point in time. Props to you guys <laughs> and girls and everyone in between. Um, so for more information, please check out the sites like I've mentioned. Uh, I explored medicalnewstoday.com, politicalsciencereview.com, thoughtco.com, usatoday.com, faculty.georgetown.edu. edu had a paper that I liked. um and as always, feel free to do your own research and send along your thoughts and feelings to us because i I would love to learn more. Sam has a lot of feelings on this. I have a lot of feelings. um and I would love to be able to talk to you more about it and like learn what I'm missing because there are a lot of holes in this. This was not even the breadth of what I wanted to cover. Um, but thank you for taking this initial journey with me, and go vote, and stay safe, and do your research. <laughs> so, Renee, on another... So with that,
0: we are going to just do a quick 180 on you all.
1: Who do we have from you?
0: So we're going to jump back into that natural science world here. And we are going to talk about somebody who, once again, I had seen her name. I didn't really know what she did. Um, I apologize in advance. I am not Polish or German, and therefore I am going to fumble a handful of words, but that is okay. Um, we are going to talk about Maria Gopert Mayer. Does that ring any bells for you? There are no bells ringing. No bells ringing. Well, to give you a hint, I'm going to tell you what my sources were. And maybe there'll be some bells. I don't know if there will be. Um, There was Wikipedia. But then my other two main sources both came from Nobelprize.org. Nobel? Nobels. Nobel's prizes? Nobel Prizes. I know them well. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Do you know who this is now?
1: Um,
0: no. All, all right. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that, we are going to discuss Maria. She was born on June 28th in 1906, and she was born in Katowice, Poland. She was the only child of Frederick and Maria Gopperd. They moved to Göttingen in 1910 as her father was a professor of pediatrics at the University of Göttingen. But here's the thing. Her father was a sixth-generation university professor. So there was a long line of academics that she came from. Mm, lots of brains. Yes. So education was very expected and highly revered in her family. Mm. Um, and Maria was closer to her father than her mother. And she was quoted saying, well, my father was more interesting. He was a scientist, after all. What was her mother? No mention. Academic. No mention of that. Oh, less interesting. Less interesting, not a scientist. Um, Her father was also quoted saying, to Maria, don't grow up to be a woman. And of that, she said, what he meant by that was a housewife. So again, this expectation of education, despite the fact that back then it was not necessarily the norm for women to go get high levels of education. Um, so she went to school in Hoher Technisch. I apologize for my fumbling of German. Um, and this was a school for middle class girls who aspired
1: to higher education. Not housewives. Not housewives. Not the real housewives of Germany. No. Uh-uh. In and they're na- also doing very <laughs> well for themselves, I must
0: say. I'm sure. In 1921, she went to Studium, which was a private prep school for women that was run by suffragettes. Yeah. However, the school actually closed a year before she was due to graduate due to inflation issues.
1: No. Oh, so this was pre-war, World Wars. This was
0: 1921. Oh, yeah. Yeah, And so at 17, she took the entrance exam for for university anyways, despite having the school close a year before. And in spring of 1924, she went to the University of Göttingen. All right. Where her dad was. Where her dad was, she spent most of her education learning there. So, at the university in 1924, there were fewer than 1 to 10 students that were female. Again, not a surprise. Ooh. She started by studying mathematics. And it was actually, of the subjects for women at the time, it was actually a popular one because there was a shortage of mathematics teachers at girls' schools. So, they needed more women to study math to teach math to more women study math to teach math to more women
1: not bad not bad it was a step in the
0: right direction Mm -hmm. however she became more interested in physics and that's what she ended up pursuing for her phd her statement on this is mathematics began to seem too much like puzzle solving physics is puzzle solving too but of puzzles created by nature not by the mind of man
1: Understood. Which
0: I liked that. Physics is more naturally occurring math. Math is math that has been put into language or words or thought by men creating math.
1: Right. And she wanted to go out into the world and study what that was all about. Yeah. So in
0: 1930, she completed her doctorate at the University of Gattining, and which was a large modern physics center in the 1920s where the cool, fun, young physics was quantum physics.
1: Oh, mm-hmm.
0: got it. They're on the cutting edge. Cutting edge. So she was awarded her doctorate in 1930, as I said, and her thesis was on the theory of a possible two-photon absorption by atoms. And this was apparently impossible to actually prove In real time back then. Due to lack of microscopes. Technology. And eventually they ended up being able to. With lasers in like the 1960s. And they ended up uh, naming a measurement after her. Because of that.
1: She's pretty cool. I immediately want to quote Austin Powers.
0: (laughs) But they've got lasers. Well with
1: that we're going to move on.
0: She had three... Nobel Prize winners on her thesis committee. Um, and what a thesis committee is, for those who do not know, is when you are working on getting your doctorate, you form a group of normally three to five um, professors, scientists associated with your university as well as with others that are there to somewhat advise you throughout your research and, um, And they are the ones that when you present your dissertation, they end up asking all of the questions for you to pass your exams. They set up what you need to know for your qualifications exams even before you do your dissertation. So these are the people kind of coaching you along the way, more hands-off than an advisor. They are not hands-on with you in the lab, but they are the ones who are setting the standard for which you need to be at to graduate with your PhD. And she had the cream of the crop. And she had three Nobel Prize winners. So she was no dummy, clearly. Yeah, she was well-connected. She was very well-connected. And she had these good mentors out of this, of these folks who were important and impressive. So these three people were Marn Bourne, James Frank, and Adolf Otto Reinhold Windaus. Some of those names will come back later. Put a pin in
1: them. They'll be back.
0: So also in 1930, she married Joseph Edward Mayer on January 19th. So happening simultaneously here. She met Joseph when he was one of James Frank's assistants. So Joseph was one of the assistants for a committee member of hers. They moved to the United States which is where Joseph was originally from. And they moved there because Joseph got a associate professor of chemistry position at Johns Hopkins University. However, Johns Hopkins would not hire Maria as a faculty member alongside Joseph due to the fact that the university had a strict nepotism rules regarding hiring. So they wouldn't hire... Her because they had hired him And a lot of these nepotism rules Were actually in play for other reasons But they ended up preventing Universities from hiring Spouses of their Original hirees Nowadays that's not necessarily the case
1: Thanks to Title IX and thank you to RBG and thank you To a litany of other women That made that possible because that Is discrimination. Just- <laughs>
0: And now, other sources say that it was not due to the nepotism, but it was due to the fact that the U.S. was going through a depression, as the 1930s, and that no university would think of
1: employing a wife of a professor. Right, because the man made the money, Mm -hmm. and it was a single-income family back then, that was the standard, and the woman's place is in the home.
0: Well, Maria didn't care about that, so she made her own rules. Good. So, regardless... She kept working just for the fun of physics. And here's the thing, freelance physicist. We will go into detail about all that she did during this time. But she was not hired as a full-time professor, salaried full-time professor, at any university until 1960. At the age of 54, 30 years after getting her doctorate. That's just wrong. So. That's just wrong. Every place that her husband, Joseph, worked, she would be a fellow or a research associate or a volunteer associate professor.
1: So she got money out of them still.
0: Less. Barely. Much less. Many of them were voluntary positions. I see. I see. Many of them, they would give her, an, not even many, some would give her an office and no money. For the fun of physics, she
1: pursued it. I told you you'd get angry. I'm pretty angry. <laughs> That's just not right. So, in the, the woman's place is in the House and the Senate, okay? And, and the lab. And the lab. Uh, the looks <laughs> I'm getting right now. So, in the early 30s at
0: Johns Hopkins, she was an assistant in the physics department and she taught some courses. Again, voluntary. Um, she worked with Carl Herzfeld in quantum mechanics. And she made annual trips from 1931 to 1933 to Göttingen to work with her former advisor, Born.
1: So they had that connection. So spelled. they had that okay. connection.
0: She kept going back in the summers to go do some work. However, these trips stopped in 1933.
1: Why? Because of the Second World War.
0: Because of the Nazi Party rising to power and Born and Frank losing their jobs.
1: That's about it. Or oh, uh, were not, they not affiliated with the Nazis? No. Good.
0: So she was very adamantly against the Nazi party as a whole. Again, Good. that comes up later. And, well, during this time, she also published an important paper in 1935 on double beta decay, which has been cited many, many times and is a lot of base work for quantum and physics nowadays however again she did that as a research assistant volunteering you can still accomplish great you can still accomplish great things in 1937 joseph was fired from johns hopkins and it was thought that it was due to the dean's hatred of women. and because joseph was there maria was there working And it was also hypothesized by Maria and other scientists that there were too many German scientists working there because there's Maria and Hirschfeld, who she was working with, and there's one other German scientist. And in 1937, three was too many.
1: Yeah, they probably had a big anti German movement in the United States. So I would assume
0: Joseph lost his job out of there. In 1939, she started working at Columbia University. Where, big deal, she was allowed to have an office, but no salary.
1: So, again, office, no pay.
0: Office, maybe a little bit of pay, hourly.
1: Oh, but no salary. salary. I get it.
0: She started to work with Harold Urey and Enrico Fermi, where she investigated the valence shell of the undiscovered transuranic elements. And predicted that they would form a new series similar to the rare earth elements, which ended up proving to be correct because she is smart. So I heard. In 1941, December, Maria finally had her first paid professional position teaching part-time, not full, at Sarah Lawrence College. And she taught there from 1941 to 1945. Woohoo, women! Women! And in spring of 1942, so while she was doing part-time teaching, um, the U.S. was heavily involved in World War II. And she started working on the Manhattan Project as part-time researcher with Harold Urey at Columbia University's Substitute Alloy Materials Labs. I have heard of her. The goal was to find ways to separate isotopes of uranium from an atomic bomb. She's also given a position at Columbia and shortly later at Los Alamos Laboratory with the Opacity Project, which had the goal of developing Edward Teller's super bomb. And that was basically what she did from 1941 to 1945. The power. And a note on her involvement in the Manhattan Project. She discussed how torn she was to work on it. Because, as we said, she was vehemently anti-Hitler, but was well aware that the weapon she was helping to create might be used on her German friends and family. And how due to this, she was relieved when her part of the project failed. And she quoted, she's quoted saying, we found nothing and we were lucky. We escaped the searing guilt felt to this day by those responsible for the bomb.
1: I can't even imagine. I mean, after hearing the stories after the atomic bombs had been dropped, it's horrific and harrowing. Mm-hmm. If I was a scientist working on that project, knowing I that, know that that you had was a hand the legacy. Oh, my God.
0: Yeah. So I can't imagine how she was feeling because she was top of her field, quantum physics, more on the side of chemical physics as well, yet doing this work that could be amazingly detrimental to society if her science succeeded... It's a very interesting line to be balancing.
1: Right. I mean, one side, like you are, you're following through and your work is great. That means it causes so much pain, mm-hmm. but it's still an amazing discovery in mm-hmm. work. But then to be heartened by the fact that this work failed, what a complex situation.
0: Yeah. It's wild. Whoa. But don't worry, because she succeeds in other ways. Of course. So, in 1946, World War II was over. um, And Joseph became a professor in chemistry at the Institute for Nuclear Studies at the University of Chicago. Maria became a voluntary associate professor of physics there. And the Argonne National Laboratory uh, was founded on July 1st, 1946. And she was offered a part-time, part-time, job as a senior physicist in the theoretical physics division, even though her response to that offer was, I don't know anything about nuclear physics. You Remember, she was
1: a chemical physicist. Got it. Okay. So she's uh,
0: branching out? She's branching out, and clearly she is brilliant and determined. And two years later, in February 1949, when she was in her early 40s, she developed a mathematical model for the structure of nuclear shells, which was published in 1950. She found that if a nucleus had a magic number of protons or neutrons, 2, 8, 20, 28, 50, 82, or 126, it tended not to decay and was more abundant than existing models could explain. She proposed that inside the nucleus, protons and neutrons are arranged in a series of nucleon layers with neutrons and protons rotating around their axes spinning and the center of the nucleus orbiting at each le- level. The model explains why certain numbers of nucleons in an atomic nucleus result in particularly stable configurations and that the nucleus is a series of closed shells and pairs of protons and neutrons tend to couple together. So it's the model of an atom. But here's the deal. At the same time, three German scientists, Otto Haxel, Hans Jensen, and Hans Seuss, had, beca- had come to the same conclusion independently. Which Maria was quoted saying that it helped solidify her respo- her conclusion that somebody else completely independent of her, came to the same conclusion.
1: It must be true. Mm -hmm. So those three
0: submitted their work in April of 1949, and it was published in June 1949. So it was published before her work was, but her work was submitted before their work was.
1: Sounds like they got it super expedited.
0: So theirs was expedited compared to hers, basically. However, the four of them started to collaborate with one another, And in 1950, Hans Johnson and Marie co-authored a book, Elementary Theory of Nuclear Shell Structure. Yay for collaboration. In 1960, more than a decade after she developed the nuclear shell model, she was hired as a full-time professor at the University of California, San Diego. Oh, finally. Finally. She suffered a stroke shortly after arriving at UCSD, but she still continued to teach and conduct research. It was 1963 where Marie, along with Jensen and Wigner, were awarded the 1963 Nobel Prize for Physics for their Discoveries Concerning Nuclear Shell Structure. She was the second female Nobel laureate in physics, the prior one being Marie Curie, And she'd be the last female Nobel laureate in physics until 2018, where Donna Strickland was awarded it.
1: Yeah, more females. And here is a
0: fun fact. I would like you to guess what the San Diego newspaper headline was when she won the Nobel Prize. Take a
1: guess. San Diego sports teams win the sports (laughs) thing. almost when the academy
0: announced that she won the newspaper's headline was s d mother wins nobel prize oh good golly s d mother s d mother mm. not s d physicist or citizen scientist researcher uh-uh mother
1: mother she was defined by that mother she had two kids
0: and we have not talked about them because we're talking about her science today in 1965 she was elected a fellow to the american academy of arts and sciences and she received the golden plate award of the american academy of achievement in february 20th 1972 she passed away due to a heart attack from the previous year that had left her comatose. Sad. So that was about nine years after she was awarded the Nobel Prize. Mm. So she was an amazing human. Yeah. Um. And we're going to go through a few things that she was, that happened after her death. First of all, the Maria Goppert Meyer award was created by the American Physical Society to honor young female physicists at the beginning of their careers. In 1996, she was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame. All right. In 2011, she was included in the third issue of American scientists, U.S. postage stamps. Oh, great. In December, 2018, the American Physical Society named Argonne National Laboratory, a historic site ID Recognition, uh, recognizing her work that took place there. Um, and they present an award to a woman, scientist, or engineer each year in her name. UCSD hosts an annual Maria Goppert Meyer Symposium, bringing together female researchers to discuss science. And she has a 35-kilometer crater on Venus named after her.
1: <laughs> Goals, honestly. <laughs> That is goals.
0: And the final thing is that she was apparently, um, this came up while looking at her volunteering, professoring, and all that. She's apparently well known for her chain-smoking and chalk-waving intensity.
1: I mean, as one (laughs) did in the 40s, 50s, 60s. So there's Maria for you.
0: Somebody who continued to work despite not getting the positions and the salary that she do and she truly did deserve and proceeding to power through and win the Nobel Prize and creating the model of what an atom looks like.
1: That just goes to show that you need to create your own future. You can't be beholden to what the greater society accepts or doesn't accept Mm -hmm. about you. If you just keep working hard at your passion, you will make it.
0: You will find a way even if there are Nazis in the way and there are men making it so that you cannot get jobs and
1: war politics there are war
0: politics being played and yeah
1: yeah and uh yeah <laughs> higher level institution politics
0: but i thought that she was fascinating to learn about i think that uh, trying to imagine how she was feeling when doing the work that she was doing and Um, imagining the flack that she might have gotten at points, it was just very fascinating to me. Um, And I'm going to point out the fact that the NobelPrize.org backslash woman who changed science slash story slash Maria Goppert Mayer had a wonderful collection of photos and commentary about her. So there were a lot of photos collected of her throughout her academic career and discussing this with these other men in the room where she was often the only female working with them. And it was fascinating to kind of get a glimpse into her life that way.
1: That sounds so beautiful. I also was really struck by her. Um, I hope it was like a passion or a need to keep teaching because it seemed like that is what was was driving half of, I mean, I don't know if it's all or half, I can only assume but it it seemed like that um, propensity to help teach.
0: The fact that she was voluntarily teaching physics instead of saying, oh, you're not going to give me money to do this. I could just stay at home and do other things. Right.
1: She used her power for good and she spread that knowledge. I think that's very admirable. With her chalk-waving intensity. Mm -hmm. And her smoke (laughs) billowing out of her lungs. She just kept right on at it. She
0: kept going, and I love it. And I think it's so crazy that, I'll admit it, until this past week, I would not have been able to place her name with the work that she did, despite her being a Nobel Prize winner, despite her work being so seminal to... Some of the basic sciences that we do nowadays.
1: I mean, it's amazing. We could probably go and do episodes on each Nobel Prize winner for something in science and have a whole bunch of people that we have never heard about. I promise you, I would never have heard about them. And that's very unfortunate. Right. They're so integral to uh, literally what we do every day and our understanding. I mean, maybe not everything that we do every day, but our understanding Something's of this most world. Days. Yeah. <laughs> hey, maybe ideas for future podcast episodes. <laughs> Who knows? The Nobel, the Nobel prize list. Why not? <laughs> that was really amazing. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for listening.
0: Um, so with that, I think we're
1: done for the day. That is about it for this episode. Thanks for joining us. We'll try
0: to keep putting out some episodes, but as I believe everyone is feeling, the world is a lot right now, and we'll do the best we can. Right, take time for
1: yourself Mm -hmm. Be safe, spread kindness And science Spread (laughs) kindness and science (laughs) Keep on being patient uh, And have care for one another Because we're all going through this together Mm -hmm. The human race Yeah Is experiencing this So um, yeah, take a second and get quiet Tune in And just, you know, take it easy And And vote Vote! (laughs) And Boat. Oh, and I'm going to get this out by Tuesday. So. Anything uh, else? Uh, how do we sign off of this? So, if you would like to learn more about us, you can check out our variety of social media and website capabilities. You can reach us at laboratory-podcast.com. You can email us at laboratorypodcast at gmail.com. We have a Twitter, at laboratorypod. You can check us out and, uh, you know, message us on Facebook. Mm -hmm. Just look up Laboratory Podcast. And we have an Instagram as well, which is laboratory podcast. Like we always say, we are looking for more people to interview. Um, We're looking for more feedback. We're looking to... You know, have some more conversations. If you heard something that you agree with, let us know. If you heard something that you disagreed with, let us know. If you heard something that's wrong, let us know and we can correct it. We're looking forward to definitely hearing from you and to start engaging yeah. uh, with like-minded people and just to see what else we can put out there because... You know, like we said, the world's kind of crazy. We just want to put positivity out there and, and science. And science and understanding. I'm Sam. I'm
0: Renee. And this has been the latest lab notebook entry.
1: Go vote. <laughs> Bye. To be in that number when the saints go marching in. Oh, when the saints go marching in. Oh, when the saints go marching in. Oh, I want to be in that number. In that number. When the saints go marching in. Happy All Saints Day.